Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Ord. This episode of Climate Fix Podcast is called Shutting Down Our Future. Our format is a little different this time around, as we do not have an outside guest joining us. Instead, ANE team member Colby is joining me in conversation, talking about nuclear power plant closures in the middle of a climate crisis. We plan on getting into the details about the last unit of Indian Point nuclear plant in New York being shut down, and the unknown future of Byron and Dresden nuclear plants in Illinois. Closures of nuclear power plants are always followed by increased emissions and local economic downturn, and we simply cannot afford to let it continue to happen. The Biden administration is aware of this problem and may consider taking steps to help stem the tide of plant closures. We will then talk about the absolutely terrifying nationwide heat waves in late June and early July, being especially bad in the Pacific Northwest. Temperature records were shattered and extreme heat unleashed all sorts of mayhem, including hundreds of deaths. Global warming is here now and is not some distant future threat. All this extra heat trapping from carbon emissions is setting us up for a lot of turmoil ahead. As a society, we must act decisively and move from fossil fuels to fission as fast as we can. This will be a rather serious episode, talking about some sobering numbers. Please note that we are not trying to scare anyone. We just want to solve a serious problem and offer a serious solution. Those who are unserious about climate change are those who keep arguing against nuclear power. Carbon emissions and climate change are worsening as a direct result of those who seek to delegitimize a more than valid carbon-free energy technology. Many keep bringing up the cost argument and claim nuclear power takes too long. These arguments were never legitimate, as most of these problems arise from anti-nuclear sentiment to begin with. We have real-world examples of affordable nuclear power that was implemented quickly, like in France. It's time to be on offense and not on defense in advocating for nuclear power. The anti-nuclear crowd is getting in the way and destroying our planet. Closing nuclear plants and refusing to build new plants during a climate emergency is indicative of an absolute policy failure. 
It's also an example of pervasive denial of science at a societal level. We need change in the direction of nuclear support and scientific literacy. That is what this episode is all about. We are fed up and need to get the message out there and stop the insanity. Nuclear is needed to fight climate change. Full stop, non-negotiable. Losing gigawatt after gigawatt of clean nuclear with polluting gas is not acceptable in our opinion. Let's stop shutting down our future. Without any more delay, here is our conversation. Hey, Colby, welcome back. Hey, always happy to be here. Well, let's uh, dive right into our discussion, talking first about the unfortunate closure of Indian Point. Yeah, the closure of Indian Point Unit 3 is, uh, you know, recent tragic news in, uh, as far as energy and climate change is concerned. This massive loss of power is basically going to get replaced by natural gas. And uh, we've known this, we've been advocating about this, we've been uh, trying to inform people that when you shut down nuclear power plants, it doesn't get replaced by wind and solar, it gets replaced by gas. And even though a region can build out wind and solar after that, the you know the real agenda should have always been replacing fossil fuels with anything that's not fossil fuels. But um, that's clearly not what we've been seeing from the anti-nuclear movement. They are more concerned with shutting down nuclear power than they are with shutting down fossil fuels. And the actual consequences of their actions can really be seen just in the grid data directly. And Indian Point is another example of this. And so just to go over some numbers, uh, Unit 2 was shut down back in April of 2020. And Unit 3 was shut down in April of um, this past year, 2021. Um, now, this tremendous loss of carbon-free power was... Um, basically a little over two gigawatts of installed capacity. And both of these units produce an average of 17 terawatt hours per year. To give you an example, that's more than the entire electrical consumption of both Vermont and New Hampshire combined, which is about 16 terawatt hours of electricity consumed. Um, now, when it comes to Indian Point, Indian Point provided enough electricity to power 2 million homes with both units running, and it accounted for about 13% of New York's electricity, um, New York State. So the absolute increase of natural gas that is resulting from this is going to increase the carbon intensity of the electricity in New York. So um, some calculations uh, done by the group Environmental Progress shows that um, the carbon intensity for electricity generated in the state of New York in May tw uh, 2019, when the units were running, was about 119 kilograms per megawatt hour. In April 2021, the intensity was 174 kilograms per megawatt hour. Um, so the closures were almost entirely replaced by natural gas. And, uh, you know... Some could say that was actually part of the larger agenda of the fossil fuel industry, even if they're saying they're going to replace it with renewables. And, um, you know, as far as the grid data is concerned, uh, the merchants of fossil fuels would be very happy with the closure of Indian Point. Um, because between May of 2019 and May of 2021, the total share of the electric grid increased 14% in fossil fuels while decreasing about 12% in nuclear and 2% uh, in wind. So, you know, when you have wind capacity, it's uh, 
doesn't matter of how much you, you know, like the actual weather can t determine how much energy you're actually generating that year, regardless of whether your installed capacity changes. So it, it was just a straight up one-to-one -one replacement yeah. of carbon free to carbon intensive. You're right. It feeds right into the, uh, you know, to benefit the fossil fuel industry. And there is some weird corruption uh, with the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo, and um, Environmental Progress did some uh, some work on kind of looking into some of this stuff. And um, there is this company called Competitive Power Ventures. They gave to uh, the Cuomo gubernatorial campaign in 2009, and they gave $75,000. Uh, they wanted to secure the future of the CPV which is Competitive Power Ventures, CPV Valley Energy Center, which is a 650 megawatt natural gas plant. And it was looking to get a 100 million 15-year power purchase agreement with the state. Wow. Uh, That's, and you know that that plant's going to be cranking out a lot of power after Indian Point goes down. And I don't think it's just that one. Uh, they, there's a brand new plant they built, um, uh, which is called Cricket Valley, I believe it's by the same people, but it's also like you know two thirds of a mega of a gigawatt of power. Um, so it, it, you can see where they built the new power plant and everything, and it's it's just sad. Uh, and here's another you know bit of kind of sketchy bedfellows. So the former aide of Cuomo, uh, his name was Todd Howe. He worked with. Um, CPV to push for closing for Indian Point. And as early as 2010, uh, Howe worked with uh, the then current aide for uh, Cuomo, Joseph Percoco, uh, to influence the, the former state operations director to close down Indian Point and to get support for Valley Energy Center, which he you know, promoted as being union supported. When nuclear power plants have stronger and more robust unions, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, unions can also be, you know, like electrical workers could work on a gas plant for one contract and, you know, a nuclear plant for the next contract. But yeah, I mean, unions are, are employed, you know, all across the energy sector, but nuclear is certainly one of the stronger, um, stronger parts of that. For sure. And I mean, this uh, kind of blatant corruption got the attention of U.S. attorney in Manhattan, Preet Bharara. Uh, and he filed a criminal indictment in 2016, uh, concluding that the importance of the plant to the state depended on Indian Point being shut down. Wow! And if you have if you have attorneys sort of you know looking into what you're doing, um, that's that's certainly suspicious, right there. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I I know this was a one of the pretty big scandals of uh, of the governor's like career and we all already know he's kind of a sleazebag too because a lot of other stuff came out with like you know s sexual harassment charges not trying to tarnish his character but slimy slimy people at play here um and then here's a here's an, another story so his campaign manager for his latest you know re-election campaign uh in 2018 um he hired this woman named Maggie Horan, and she's a lobbyist for a natural gas pipeline company called Transco. Uh, not at the time when he hired her, but previously. And this company, Transco, 
was aiming to build a pipeline between New Jersey and New York. So that was kind of a an, an issue. He got some flack from the other lady running, uh, Cynthia Nixon, I believe, about that uh, pipeline. So and that's that's yeah, fossil fuel money for sure. It's it's just kind of weird that a fossil fuel gas pipeline lobbyist became his campaign manager. And uh, just so we all know, Transco, it's a subsidiary of the Williams companies. And they donated $100,000 to a Democratic Party governor's organization that supported Cuomo. Wow. So it's, you know, we have the, the revolving door of fossil fuel lobbyists and, you know, they, they go work for the fossil fuel industry, then come, come around, go work in offices of government, which can then shut down, you know, the competition, which is nuclear. And uh, here we also have the same companies just dumping money into the campaigns of politicians who are also enemies of nuclear and trying to shut down these nuclear plants. And, you know, they might say what they're going to say about, oh, it'll get replaced by renewables. But ultimately, you know, it gets replaced by gas. And even if we could replace Indian Point with renewables, that should have never been the plan to begin with, because as long as the grid is dominated by fossil fuels, as long as there's fossil fuels on the grid, if we care about climate change, if we care about cutting back on pollution, we should be targeting any replacement of you know, like target fossil fuels for replacement, not targeting nuclear. Yeah. And it was, and I also found it kind of annoying because he also like pushed for banning fracking in the state of New York. Well, that's basically saying, well, I'm not going to crap where I eat, but I'll still, you know, continue to, to rely on natural gas and, you know, support it. Import it. That's what that pipeline is going to be for. (laughs) Import it from, you know, Heck, I think even some places in the the Northeast import from Russia. There's, there's been a few uh, a few newspaper headlines I've read about that, um, and yeah, because we, we get them in from from big uh, tanker boats, and uh, I guess some people did the work and they followed the gas, and um, we're not supposed to be importing directly from Russia, but the gas can you know land in another port. Uh, between Russia and here, get loaded onto tanks and then like loaded back onto another tanker and you know shipped over here. So, thank you, Jones uh, Act. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's a few uh, news articles about that happening in the last ten years. Um, but you know, on this on this argument that, that I often see from the anti nuclear movement, they say you know don't worry about shutting down. You know, we're we're going to shut down the nuclear, but don't worry, it'll be replaced by solar and wind. But this is just absolutely ridiculous when you look at the grid data. So when it comes to Indian Point two and three, just one of these units, um, the amount of electricity they generate is more than the total amount of electricity generated from solar and wind in the, in New York. So um, combined together, uh, it's two and a half times the output of all statewide solar and wind. And so, you know, they say, yeah, we'll replace it with solar and wind. Well, you know, <laughs> the initial amount of solar and wind can't even, uh, would not have even replaced one of them. Uh, and you know that's given all the all the time that New York has had to build up solar and wind infrastructure. Uh, and there's a, a pretty good um, graphic provided by NuclearNY.org, 
Um, and it basically shows you side-by-side comparisons of what the losses of Indian Point 2 and 3 uh, would mean compared to how much solar and wind uh, electricity generation there is. And that's taken right from NYISO, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the grid data is, is what I always you know, look to rely on when it comes to, you know, what, testing the claims of the anti-nuclear movement or, or any, you know, any outlet claiming to, you know, advise good energy policy. Like what, what does the grid data actually show? Right. And they, they undid all of their solar and wind twofold, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, like, so the question is like, was Indian point due for closure? Cause you know, the anti-nuclear movement has have been, you know, banging that drum for a while. They try to say that about all plants. Um, and there's this persistent lie that uh, I, I noticed, uh, and I, I'm sure many of our listeners also notice, is just because the NRC will license a new plant that, you know, just opened up for 40 years, that's standard regulatory practice, give it a 40-year license, that does not imply the actual lifetime of the plant. That is just the first license. And it's pretty routine, assuming, you know, everything's going well, that you can get that license extended 20 years after the 40-year period. And there's regulatory pathways for that, too. Um, And, you know, some plants are even extending that another 20 years and, um, you know, going 80 years. And, you know, we haven't gotten to the point where anyone's been applying for a 100-year license yet, but, uh, you know, many people in the, in the industry, like, don't see a problem with that either. So uh, the question is, how long could Indian Point have, uh, have gone without, you know, like, without aging out uh, just based on uh, actual technical deterioration? And uh, so just on the regulatory side, the application for a license extension was filed successfully, and uh, the NRC was relicensing it for another 20 years, uh, starting in uh, for Unit 2, uh, 2013, and Unit 3 for 2015. And so at, just on that relicensing extension alone, we could have had an Indian point running, um, you know, another at least another 10 years out from, uh, or these two units, at least another 10 years out from uh, the current time. So uh, that would have been, you know, if we do the math, or 17 terawatt hours a year, 170 terawatt hours of clean electricity that we just basically sabotaged. Um, and that's now going to get filled in with fossil fuels for, for the time being. For sure. That's shameful. Absolutely. And, uh, but yeah, and you know, it's, that, that's thinking long-term thinking climate, thinking pollution, but the fact that we have, taken off two gigawatts of dispatchable power that can run nonstop. Uh, and we saw the headlines this past year, you know, climate change is, is change, changing the climate, changing the weather. We're getting hotter summers. And uh, we saw New York city and, and, you know, the, the, the government, uh, the state government actually tell people, Hey, we know it's a heat wave, but please, you know, keep your ACs, like use your ACs sparingly, like don't use that much electricity. There's now a electricity shortage on the grid following the closure of these units. So, you know, that 
brings up a list of problems, uh, not just that we're losing carbon-free electricity, but we're losing electricity in general. And heat waves are no, are no joke. Like it's, it's not just that, you know, we feel uncomfortable and, and sweaty and groggy during them. It's that uh, heat waves can actually be deadly and they have been deadly this past year. Definitely. And it's absolutely infuriating to see that these anti-nuclear NGOs spread all of these mis misleading statements, all these false claims about nuclear energy, uh, make all these promises about how the grid's going to remain stable and it's going to be fine and it'll be replaced by renewables. And it gets replaced by gas and we run into energy shortages right after that unit gets shut down. And you know, right. other people pay the price. And uh, it, it's, it's very tragic that um, you know, it's, we, if, if we have rolling blackouts in the middle of the summer, it, it can be just as fa fatal as rolling blackouts in the middle of the winter. Heat waves can kill people just like, uh, you know, cold spells and, and, and deep freezes when, when you don't have electricity running to your house. Um, so it's, it's a serious issue. And when temperatures, you know, start to reach, you know, a hundred degrees or almost reach it, uh, when it's in, in a place in a part of the country where that's not very common. Yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna cause a lot of problems. It's gonna piss a lot of people off too. Uh, and we all know that heat makes everyone more angry too. It does. Um, I'd be curious to actually look up scientific studies on, on, you know, uh, rates of violent crime during heat waves, uh, that that'd be an interesting thing to look up. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'll bet I'm taking a note of that. Yeah, and it's the the widespread blackouts they had in Brooklyn. You know, at the in the latest heat wave we had at the end of June, they might have not had blackouts if Indian Point was still running. So, two gigawatts makes a lot of difference on the grid. That's for sure. Definitely, you can run a lot of air conditioners off two gigawatts. <laughs> that's you can say that again. Um, so yeah, that's the unfortunate end of Indian Point. Hopefully, they don't dismantle it too quickly. Maybe there's a way to resurrect it. Who knows? Probably not, though. But uh, and engineers could do it. The question is, would politicians let them? <laughs> exactly, that's true. Let's let's just get a bunch of. Uh, um, outlaw engineers and just <laughs> just just take it over and be like we are going to let this electricity go without a fight but uh, so and indian point is could be just the beginning of even more like uh like we've lost like another big react reactor we lost before uh indian point was the second unit of wait was it unit one or unit two is one of the units of three mile island that was also a gigawatt, and it's it's just starting to get. We're starting to get, instead of losing the small plants, we're starting to lose the gigawatt ones too. Um, yeah, and especially there's the future is very uncertain for some of the power plants in Illinois, and Illinois is one of the highest nuclear powered states in the country. It is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like like half of Chicago's energy is nuclear. I mean, electricity or something like that. Yeah, I could be wrong on that exact number, but it's a lot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, the, the whole state is in the neighborhood of 50%, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, so these two plants, uh, Byron Plant and Dresden Plant, each one are about two gigs, if I'm not mistaken. 
I think so. Um, so Exelon in late August 2020, so last year, uh, said that it would close Byron and Dresden nuclear plants um, in the fall of this year, unless it gets a change in state law to subsidize the plants. Um, they they claim they can no longer operate at a profit in the face of falling energy prices and competition from fossil fuel plants. You know, I'm, they're looking for like a small increase in in the amount of you know subsidy for it to kind of sh showcase its carbon-free attributes, but that takes you know legislative change to to get that you know get that going. Absolutely. And, and this closure would eliminate for for uh, Byron and Dresden only would emit, uh, eliminate 1,500 full-time jobs and reduce work for about 2,000 supplemental employees that are um, brought in during the refueling. And so together, uh, these two plants account for 30% of Illinois' carbon-free energy output, electricity output. Either, wait, is it an, it's electricity. It's an energy. Electricity, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not all energy, but... You say energy, you have to count the gasoline yeah. and automobiles yeah, exactly, and all that. Right. <laughs> yep. But that's still a lot. That's still very substantial because there's a lot of people live in Illinois. It's, it's got Chicago, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's, you know, I think a few years ago, they they did pass a clean energy standard for two plants, uh, Clinton and uh, Quad Cities. Um, but there are four plants that aren't covered under this, which is Byron, Dresden, LaSalle, and Braidwood. Um, and losing all those plants, I mean, we'll get into that later. Uh, if we don't take care of those plants, that's going to be just huge, huge swaths of carbon-free energy gone. Um, but there has been, you know, an, an effort to to get more of these plants on these like clean energy credits. So an example of this is the climate union jobs act, uh, which was uh, introduced to this, you know, Illinois general assembly and it would uh, create 74 million megawatt hours of carbon mitigation credits to, uh, to facilities, including Byron, Dresden, LaSalle and Braidwood. So all four of these, are I mean Byron and Dresden are are uh, planned to close if nothing happens, but we could also use Braid Blues, Braidwood, and LaSalle if they aren't covered either. So um, this bill had hopes of being passed before the end of the legislative session in you know May thirty first, uh, but the bill was not passed in time and it's kind of in limbo right now. Wow. I mean, I just looked it up, and, and to clarify, um, Dresden is its its nameplate installed capacity is um, about uh, 1.8 gigawatts, roughly, and then Byron is about um, like 2.3 gigawatts in that neighborhood. So yeah, they're they're you know average them out, and they're basically uh, a two uh, two gig plants each, and that's that's pretty significant. Um, it, it's it's pretty concerning to know that like all of these plants are, are threatened for closure just because natural gas is cheap and politicians just don't really care about the climate when they say they do. Because uh, if they did, yeah. they'd be like keeping nuclear plants open and 
doing everything we can to keep them open and running. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, there are the zero carbon energy credits, or there are also the renewable energy credits. Um, and if you if you don't have a, you know, carbon free energy credit, then you basically are saying I'm leaving nuclear out of the situation. It's uh, it's it's so broken. The um. You know, like watching how, uh, you know, biomass plants that are basically either either burning garbage or burning, you know, forests, <laughs> uh, wood or, or crop waste are just, you know, very low energy density uh, biomass material. And the ones that get credits for burning garbage, like only only about half the carbon that goes into a waste incinerator is actually from biomass. The other half is like petrol products. But um, they get these renewable energy credits as if, you know, that's going to mean it's good for the climate, but nuclear is left out of so many of those deals, as you said, uh, where if we have zero emission credit, like that would make a lot more sense. That would include nuclear and, you know, maybe there could be some legislative debate over whether biomass even deserves to, you know, be part of that equation because it's still emitting carbon, um, despite the accounting tricks that, you know, keep it on the table and keep it in play. Um, so the, the fact that, you know, these plants rely on government sub like government bills of, of special subsidies or special, uh, conditions where politicians have to either care enough about the climate or know enough about how important nuclear is, is, is really frustrating because, you know, if, if we're losing <laughs> nuclear plants, it's not just that, you know, we're losing carbon-free electricity, carbon-free power. What would that do to Illinois if it lost, you know, four gigawatts of dispatchable baseload power within a year? That's terrifying, uh, especially with climate change happening, especially with, you know, summers getting hotter, the winters getting colder, the uh, extreme weather events kicking up. Um, We're going to need more power on reserve. At, absolutely. When these things happen in the future. We're going to need nuclear power plants to power air conditioners. We're going to need them to, you know, um, displace, it's like power our civilization in a extreme, in a, an increasingly uh, destabilizing climate. And, um, you know, are they going to be able to even build enough natural gas plants fast enough? I'm not even going to entertain the, the idea of, you know, building renewables, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, are there plants that, that can really pick up the slack? Are there neighboring grids that can, you know, offer imports? Um, that's, that's going to be a lot of math problems for, uh, for the grid operators to figure out if these politicians don't get their act together on this. Definitely. And it's, it's really a shame that, you know, Exelon, I mean, I, I get it, they're a business, um, and, you know, they, they're they basically telling the politicians, you know, the, the ultimatum, you know, you either value nuclear energy um, and and provide what we need or uh, we're going to have to shut this down. So lawmakers held this special legislative session in mid-June to try again, once again, <laughs> the session adjourned with no deal. Um, and much of the disagreement, uh, came from, uh, among the Democrats, uh, and with, you know, rifts with the environment, like the quote, self-proclaimed environmental activists. Um, uh, and 
you know, I, I think just the way government works is I think they're just going to hope that they put enough things in the same bill to make everybody happy. And hopefully that'll, uh, that'll get passed in some, you know, omnibus package or something. Um, but that's, that's going to be in the coming months. Yeah. I, and I guess the, the rift actually was like between some like people like the labor unions for the nuclear power plants that were also Democrats that are at were at odds with the environmental activists. So it's kind of weird, the different, you know, it's kind of interesting, the different, um, you know, factors at play there for the different, you know, groups of people that are supporting which thing. And it's like, I think that's interesting because a lot of the in, in environmental groups like to say they're, they're pro worker pro union, <laughs> but, but you know, then they were, you see them fighting with people that were on that side of things. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even like to give them the, you know, direct title environmentalist. I, I just say self-proclaimed environmental activists right. because, uh, you know, real environmentalists support nuclear power. But I've, I've, I've testified at NRC hearings and stuff. And, you know, you'll, you'll see the room with all the labor union folks who are like, you know, we work on this plant, we know the plant is safe. And then you'll get these like, you know, a handful of anti-nuclear activists who have no idea how the plant works and they just want to, you know, get up on the microphone and talk about why they hate nuclear. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always like, you know, the union guys who are actually working and working to keep that plant up and running and operational and safe and providing power for the community and the state. And, you know, some anti-nuclear activists who, uh, give the same talking points over and over again, which are either like false or very misleading or irrelevant. Definitely. So yeah. what do you think? Uh, like, have you looked at the numbers and, 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 and consequences that are forecasted if we, if we risk losing Byron and Dresden? Yeah, there was a, um, there's a group called the Brattle group and they, uh, commissioned lots of studies on energy and other economic issues. Um, so Exelon, who uh, runs the plants, has has doubled down and says, unless a bill is passed, you know, they will shut down those plants. So we, we need to be careful, like, what that would do. Um, so these are some insane statistics here. But uh, so losing Byron and Dresden nuclear plants would cause a 20 million ton increase in annual CO2 emissions from the electricity sector in wow. the state. Uh, the loss of the plants might lead to an electricity price increase of about $2.10 a megawatt hour uh, or $313 million a year and lead to over 21 million tons more CO2 added to the atmosphere annually. We kind of said that above too. Uh, this undoes almost half the state's carbon emissions reductions since 2005. And let's say LaSalle and Braidwood plants also close, which would probably happen down the line if they don't get some sort of energy credit. Uh, it would undo all of the progress they've made um, since 2005. Wow. All of it. Um, so, and Byron and Dresden both have a net summer capacity of about four gigawatts, um, and uh, annual combined generation um, of 35 terawatt hours. Wow. <laughs> so that's a lot. That's um, absolutely. And so closing Byron, Tristan, LaSalle, and Braidwood 
which aren't, which are all again not subsidized under uh, zero emission credits, uh, would result in a net loss of like 3.46 billion in annual state GDP and 28,000 annual jobs, and which 40, 4,200 of them are with the utility and 149 million in estimated annual Illinois tax revenues. That is, I mean, how can somebody read these numbers and think this bill was a good idea? You know? Oh, well, well, the bill's trying to save it, though. Uh, I mean, like, not supporting this bill or, like, opposing the bill. Like, the, uh, sorry, yeah, you're right. But so so that's, like, the economic bombshell. Now, like, what, what, would, they, what would these plants get replaced by? Like, what's lined up? Uh, so they have, um, they say... Uh, 60% of this generation would be replaced by gas and 37% by coal based on increased outputs of other plants in the area. Wow. Um, yeah, so, and then here's a, a statistic you can get your, easier to kind of get your mind around. Uh, getting rid of all four plants, uh, if they got rid of it, would be like adding 10 million cars to the roads. Uh, and... It would be a 70% increase in power sector emissions for the entire state. Wow. 10 million cars. And I mean, I'm just thinking that that's like. That's the magic of nuclear power, people. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a handful of reactors is holding back that much pollution, is holding back that many carbon emissions. And, you know, it's it's ridiculous that. Yeah, you know, so many people insist on being so opposed to this technology. Yeah, it's 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 the true unsung climate heavyweight heavyweight champion, you know. So on the federal level, uh, I'm really curious about how the Biden administration is going to uh, deal with nuclear power. Are they going to be you know very supportive of it because it plays into climate goals and you know generally. Uh, keeps up status quo and keeps the unions happy, or is uh, the Biden administration going to, you know, lean more towards what the anti-nuclear movement has been, uh, you know, pushing for? And so, right now, I know there are talks of, uh, you know, special tax credits for nuclear plants to keep them running, um, and uh, hopefully, something like that does make it through Congress on a federal level. So, if state governments fail to, you know, provide support for nuclear, then maybe there could be a federal program that could step in instead. Um, and, you know, Biden does present pretty ambitious climate goals, and uh, he's saying, you know, carbon-free electricity grid by 2035 and a carbon-free economy by 2050. Those claims, you know. <laughs> it is a politician saying them. Uh, we would not be able to do that without nuclear. Um, and unfortunately, we have these anti-nuclear activists, uh, you know, who are, are saying stuff like uh, bailouts for existing reactors are wrong for the climate and wrong for consumers. You know, uh, Lucas Ross, uh, program manager at Friends of the Earth, um, said that. And yeah, we can remind everybody. Yeah. To be fair, it is just friends of the earth. Like they're kind of ridiculous. They're like the kind of the PETA of environmental groups, almost. So they're they're pretty anti-nuclear, and you know, they the, friends of the earth was an organization that was founded with 
um, money provided by somebody named Robert Orville Anderson, who was a pretty wealthy fossil fuel tycoon uh, at the time. And you can look that up. There's been a few articles written about that. Um, Dang. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> with the anti-nuclear agenda and, you know, keep the fossil fuel emissions going. Uh, but, um, yeah, so our nuclear fleet is under risk. One, one group, um, the Rhodium Group, which is a, you know, economic think tank, uh, research institute who does this independent, uh, analytics and stuff. They issued a report on the state of clean energy in the U S and, um, they basically came out and said, Hey, if we don't put in policies to protect our nuclear fleet, if we don't actually value nuclear power in the economy or value nuclear power and what it can bring in the role of climate change mitigation, um, and we just keep going with the current policy framework and, and don't do anything to, uh, you know, keep nuclear up and running, uh, we'll lose half of the U.S. fleet uh, by 2030. So, you know, nuclear power is about 20% of our country's electricity right now. You know, <laughs> seeing that go down at 10%, what's going to fill the gaps? What, and, and, you know, all... There's so much harm that can come from that, whether it's uh, pollution, carbon emissions, the increase in power uh, uh, power costs, the jobs that will be lost, the communities that will be harmed who uh, are basically dependent on, you know, nuclear power plants as their main economic powerhouse. Uh, it's it's going to be really tragic if we don't have politicians that value nuclear energy uh you know, for all the reasons that are quite valid, valid in uh, valuing the, this technology. For sure. Yeah, that's a, a good 10% of our electric grid, you know, that can just go away when there's no reason for it to do so. And then, yeah, that's in the next decade. So Manchin wrote in a letter to Biden, as a zero emissions base load fuel source, I believe that maintaining our fleet and preventing the closures of existing nuclear plants is critical to achieving emission reduction goals and ensuring a reliable grid. Basically saying what the scientists are saying, <laughs> saying what the engineers are saying. That's, that's good. His uh, bipartisan record is actually pretty based uh, <laughs> for that, for the, in that aspect. So, yeah. So, um, and, you know, so far, like what we're kind of observing is, you know, is Biden seems to be like softly supportive uh, of the existing nuclear fleet. But like, I I'd like to see action. I'd like to see that, you know, put down into law. I'd like to see that, you know, the checks being issued. The uh, <laughs> I want to see these yeah. plants stay open. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not going to advance credit. I, I want to see these plants stay open. So I, mean, I wish they could publicly say something about this exact subject, but it's just still somehow a, you know, political boondoggle. Yeah. And, and there is certainly a lot going on right now in, in the world. So, um, but climate change and, and these plants, like I'd, I'd really like to see some firm statements on this too. Right. Exactly. And I, I, I do think the, the administration is, you know, trying to push aside some of the unreason, like uh, there is some kind of like kind of kind of wacky fringe, you know, environmental justice advocates 
that uh, were advising the White House, and uh, they wrote like a letter about, you know, sent a letter to, to uh, lawmakers calling on them to pursue a national standard requiring 100% renewable power by 2030, explicitly rejecting nuclear power. Um, and but and this is a rebuttal to a, you know, policy favored by the, you know, Biden administration and top House Democrat Democrats and, you know, many more centrist environmental groups that called for carbon free nuclear intensive power by 2035. So I think that they're, you know, kind of staying away from the more kind of radical, like kind of deep green type. Someone made this point that they're they're mad because you can't dismantle the system with nuclear power. It's kind of a you're able to <laughs> you're able to still run uh, society with it. You know, you don't yeah. need to totally restructure everything. So <laughs> I, I I think they're staying. I'm, I'm I'm glad it's in the direction of reason as far as I can tell. So there were some pretty ridiculous things that you know, were submitted to the Biden administration. I remember seeing, you know, one letter that got circulated, it, it boasted signatures from, you know, 600 environment, like quote, environmental uh, groups. But I started going through the list of signatories and like some of these groups, it was just like, you know, one person, like it's just their, right. they, they run something, they run their own blog and they call themselves a group and like they might have a mailing list or something, but it's just like one, per yeah. And the claims and the demands in that letter were ridiculous. They were even rejecting large-scale hydro. Right. And so the yep. only things they wanted were solar, wind, and small-scale hydro. And it's like once you get rid of, you know, large-scale hydro and you get rid of nuclear, like there's you're left with peanuts that require right. this fossil fuel-dominated grid to to keep stable. Exactly. And that was the letter I was talking about, like and part of those yeah, kind of out there groups like, well, of course, Friends of the Earth and Center for Biological Diversity uh, and the Indigenous Environmental R Network, among uh, hundreds of others. But like you say, like a lot of the, not even like Sierra Club and NRDC didn't even sign on to that. So that, <laughs> that says something. Um. <laughs> And I'm like, and another thing, the le the letter was also criticizing biomass, which I understand. But uh, yeah, like when you start saying you you oppose large scale hydro, that's that that's narrowing your support base even further. Um, and uh, it's it's a fascinating subject that I really wish got more attention in the media uh, as far as shining spotlights onto this. Um, yeah, for sure. But there. There was kind of a weird thing, and you'll you'll get into that. But Gina McCarthy, who used to be EPA administrator, uh, she, she who's also like a the president of the Sierra Club right now, no NRDC. She she said some good things about nuclear, which is interesting. Yeah, her quote was. Uh... <laughs> In, Mary, in, in many areas, a continuation of the existing nuclear, as long as it's environmentally sound and it's permitted, is going to be absolutely essential because it will provide time to develop renewable energy into a bigger part of the energy mix. Um, and I guess she said that at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, uh, which is a virtual event on May 18th. Um, 
and NRDC is a, a pretty anti-nuclear group. They wrote, they, they, uh, I think they teamed up with either Sierra Club or another. Uh, no, they, uh, I think it was Waterkeeper Alliance. Even worse, Riverkeeper. Yeah. R- Riverkeeper, yeah, which is yeah. a subsidiary of Waterkeeper. But um, oh, okay, they, uh, you know, put this report together about Indian Point years ago, um, and they basically said, you know, hey. Uh, we can start the closure process now because this is years ago and it takes years to, you know, from the signature to actual reactor shutdown um, to build up renewable energy, you know, to replace it or whatever. And of course that didn't happen. Um, But in the report that they authored way back when uh, they specifically stated that uh, on the section on, you know, would the grid become unstable? Um, they even said uh, we could repower. Uh, let me get the quote out here. Our analysis shows that a wide range of options are available to make the transition to a safe, sustainable energy future of New York without Indian Point. These options include energy efficiency, <laughs> renewable energy, such as wind and solar power, new transmission projects, and repowering old, inefficient, existing natural gas plants. All of these wow. energy options could be implemented in the next 10 years, many even earlier. So this was a report commissioned by the NRDC. Um, and, you know, like when you have this, quote, environmental group who is advocating the closure of a nuclear plant and they're saying, hey, don't worry, we can replace it with gas. And this is, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and clearly with the amount of solar and wind in New York State, that never got built up nearly you know, to to a fraction of of what was actually needed to replace Indian Point. Um, you know, it's basically admitting, like, all right, energy efficiency, new transmission projects. Yeah, where are they? Like, we we end up with natural gas. That's that's what we ended up with. And they said right. this in this in their report that they were championing. Um, so, uh, so thanks, Mark. <laughs> thanks, Mark Ruffalo, for not knowing what the hell you're talking about. Oh yeah, the Hollywood celebrities. Um, yeah, and and he came down in support of the Riverkeeper Alliance, who is you know Robert F Kennedy Jr.'s group, who's the notorious anti-vaxxer, who's getting a lot of yep. attention now that the pandemic is is still a problem, and uh, he he was also campaigning against Indian Point, and you know just general scientific you know heuristic. If a notorious anti-vaxxer is championing your cause, you should really question your cause deeper you know uh, <laughs> well and and he's on he's on record actually uh yeah he's on record saying uh solar plants are gas plants he he said that at a gas invest at a gas industry investor meeting years ago yeah in fact uh rod adams of um uh uh, the Atomic Insights blog has his YouTube channel. He he keeps that video clip up on YouTube. You can uh, Google it and find it and like see him, you know, <laughs> directly admit the scam that, hey, solar and winds, like they're really just gas plants. We, we want that gas pipe. He even said that too. Uh, so it's like, you know, the ones at the top, they know what they're doing. They 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 understand the full scam but uh it, it's really tragic that uh you know people aren't smartening up to this fast enough and we're losing these nuclear plants and ending up with all these extra carbon emissions and pollution so uh yeah it's it's absolutely tragic yeah and 
but you know there is some interesting hope inside like there's talk about that new infrastructure bill um or the, and talk about you know the like that's one of the big things that they're talking about now is the the infrastructure um uh, going through congress um and that has some kind of cool nuclear stuff in there yeah, it is. It is interesting how nuclear is like that. There is this interesting like bipartisan balancing act where it's like Republicans don't necessarily have a direct problem with nuclear in general. Uh, moderate Democrats, not really, but it's it, it's it's not as divisive as an issue as so many other issues in politics are. There's like a, a kind of some opposition on both sides, some support on both sides, but. In general, it is something that, hey, like our country needs infrastructure, our country needs energy, put this in. And um, so this uh, on July 14th, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee advanced an energy bill that's expected to be part of the bipartisan infrastructure framework by a 13 to 7 vote. So that's hopeful. Um, and this piece of legislation is expected to boost nuclear energy, uh, hydrogen energy, and carbon capture. Uh, so, at least there's progress on that front. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. And yeah, like you say, it's interesting bipartisanship, which will probably be the uh, lifeline to nuclear in the future. I think. So <laughs> I sure hope so. Um, yeah. Um, so. Let's kind of switch gears and get into the uh, crazy climate behavior we have seen recently. Um, so the Pacific Northwest saw some very alarming temperatures, to say the least. Uh, you know, uh, Portland, Oregon set an all-time uh, record high temperature uh, three days in a row, and that wow. top, topped out at 116 degrees on June 28th. Wow. Uh, 116 degrees in Portland, o Oregon, people. Uh, <laughs> Seattle hit 108 degrees, besting the all-time record it set just a day earlier. Um, so this is a, one of the m most scary things I saw about this was this small little town called uh, Lighten, British Columbia, uh, they registered 117.5 degrees on June 28 and topped out at 121.3 degrees on the 29th. Uh, oh, wow. That's the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada. Uh, and that's around when it's about 48 degrees above what's normal for this time of year. Uh, fires broke out and the sound, the, the, the town of Lighton burned down. Like most of the dwellings were burned to the ground, um, so I mean that's that's crazy. A, a town burned to the ground because of these high temperatures, um, and not not just with with fires. Extreme heat is is one of the deadliest is one of the deadliest consequences of climate change, killing more people than any other uh, weather related event. Uh, heat deaths are probably also underreported because extreme heat contributes to more deaths other than things like heat stroke because they exacerbate other chronic diseases such as heart and lung conditions. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and this all this weather was caused by what they call a heat dome, which is a strong range of high pressure that acts as like a lid on the atmosphere 
and that lid traps the hot air trying to escape and warms it even more as it sinks. But it's wow, that's, that's brutal. Yeah, and I mean, there were deaths recorded. I'm not sure which article, but like this led to like a few hundred people like dying of heat-related illnesses. I believe it, and it's it's really. You know, it's something to really ponder and, th and think about because if, if you ask somebody, hey, you know, what's the deadliest type of weather event, people think, you know, oh, hurricanes or tornadoes or, you know, something with actual, like, newsworthy footage. But a lot of times people don't think of heat waves and right. the amount of, you know, human misery and, and fatalities that can happen as a result of a heat wave, um, you know, it might not make for like you know shocking footage for the newscasters but statistically that is a pretty significant thing to keep in mind especially in you know the age of climate change yeah definitely and uh you know it, it didn't just end at being really hot in portland and seattle either like th there were some crazy things that, that happened um yeah, I remember seeing a map where it was just, you know, it listed every county that had a a new record high temperature recorded. And it was, you know, like pretty much the majority of counties in, in the Pacific Northwest uh, were, were all lit up. And, you know, so um, through June 29th, uh, at least 36 locations in the Western U.S. and another 38 in Canada have tied or set all-time high records uh, for temperatures among reporting stations um, since as far back as the 1960s. As as in, yeah, like that's the like the most current is they started recording back in the 60s, which is which is crazy. I mean, a lot of these records were started like way earlier than that, but I mean, like they these are places that have cons like reliable records for many decades. Oh yeah, and and you know, like as you as you said, this extreme heat, you know, wildfires uh, really thrive in, in these conditions when you know the wood and kindling and tinder dry out, and uh, you're not getting like uh, water to <laughs> um, when all the water leaves the biomass. Like that is a pretty significant wildfire risk. So there's wildfires in British Columbia, Alberta, and. Uh, these wildfires were so intense that they were generating their own thunderstorms known as pyrocumulonimbi <laughs> um, and uh, triggering evacuations. So like, that's a very interesting weather phenomenon where you have smoke uh, from these wildfires that have so much particulates in the air that they um, can actually uh, create their own thunderstorm system. Yeah, um, it's like you're driving past and like it's just like, Dad, what's that? Oh, it's just the firestorm lightning again, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, comic book apocalyptic weather, but it's real and it's happening. Um, and uh, that high, like the June 29th high you mentioned on uh, light in British Columbia, um, that matched the high on the same day as Death Valley, California, which is known as, you know, one of the hottest uh, places in the U.S. and and uh, you know I don't know who does the accounting, but I do know Death Valley is often referenced as like the hottest place in North America. <laughs> um, I'm sure you know 
there's different ways to do those counting, but or or even one, you know one of the hottest places on Earth. Yeah. So, uh, outdoor pools were closed in Seattle. Um, blueberries were cooked in the intense sun. Roads buckled in Western uh, Washington. Uh, vinyl siding warped. Um, this is this is types of stuff that you you might see in a town that um, you know like had a wildfire go, run through it, but it's right. just, just the intense heat that is doing this directly. Um, and, you know, this also has other indirect effects where if you have heat this intense and you have snow on mountains and the heat melts that snow at a very rapid rate, uh, the snow melts can cause floods. And in some cases, the snow melt was so rapid that bridges were washed out in Mount Rainier National Park. Uh, so, you know, and Mount Rainier is, is near Seattle, um, and uh, it's it's a pretty significant mountain. So um, there's indirect effects of this heat too. Uh, right. And I don't know if you saw the pictures, but um, the light rail power line installations were melting in Portland, uh, shutting down public transit systems. Uh, so our infrastructure, our transit infrastructure, directly are is is being impacted by this heat. Uh, and, you know, there's pictures of that on um, even the um, Portland Public Transit uh, Facebook page was posting pictures of this insulation that was melting. Now, near Canada's hotspot of, um, I don't know if it's Lighten or, or Lytton. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, oh wait, I think it's Lighten. Lighten? Oh, well, yeah. okay. I'm sure somebody will correct us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so fire crews couldn't battle away a fire uh, wildfire by helicopter because the air was too hot and wasn't dense enough to allow the helicopter to hover. That's pretty significant. Um, and yeah, in Salem, Oregon, uh, um, Salem, Oregon tied the Las Vegas record heat high of 117 degrees on June 28th. So it was as hot as Salem. It was as hot in Oregon as it was in Vegas. That is, that is pretty ridiculous. Their highest uh, temperature in Vegas. Yeah. That's wow. nuts. Um, and so the highest ever recorded, uh, temperature, um, on earth recently, and it was in death, death Valley, California, uh, at 130 degrees Fahrenheit on July 9th. Um, and it was one of the hottest temperatures ever reliably recorded on the planet. Um, and the temperature is tied for the hottest temperature reliably recorded on earth, um, with, <laughs> with its own previous highest temperature from August of last year. So, you know, that's the data points are consistent every summer. It's just, uh, we're, we're living on a planet that's getting hotter. Um, 130 so, degrees. That's, and it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> near death Valley, there's this, uh, town, um, I'm trying to think of the name of it. I think it was, uh, I think it's just Baker. Uh, and it's, it's this town off the side of the highway. Um, and their claim to fame is that they have the world's largest thermometer because it gets really hot out there. And I remember driving by that place. I stayed there once and the thermometer went up to 130 and it's this big, you know, 50 foot thermometer. It's a little tourist attraction to get a picture with, but now I'm wondering, like, are they going to have to update that thermometer? Are they going to have to, you know, add another 10, 
10, 20 degrees even. Uh, right. Cause it's, we're, we're going to be living in a different type of planet, uh, with different conditions here. And I'm wondering, you know, what's going to happen to our infrastructure? What's going to happen to our power grid with this extreme heat? Are, are we going to have to live underground? Who knows? <laughs> There's towns in Australia where the people do that. <laughs> it's, it's cheaper to just build their houses underground and then pay for air conditioning <laughs> to, right. to compete with that. Jeez. Yeah. The, it's just not, not set up for that. Like, you know, uh, it can, it, one of the biggest things is it drive, drives up energy demands and you see these huge surges in electricity use because of the need for air conditioners and uh, too much, you know, stress on the, on the uh, electric grid can lead to brownouts, uh, partial outages and like rolling blackouts. And, you know, because they have to reduce the amount of, of power on the system. Uh, high temperatures can also make plants less effective. They limit the amount of energy the power lines can carry and make failures more likely in transformers, uh, which, how, which these are things that help control the voltage throughout the power grid. Um, another example is if the weather gets hot enough, power lines start to sag, and that could, you know, that's a result of the metal expanding inside them, and they can strike trees and start fires. You know, another one too is a lot of thermal plants require cooling with, you know, water availability. And if we get to a, a point where there's not an, enough like water in reservoirs, that could become a problem too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's ways around that because, I mean, that's not saying that nuclear is doomed, but. I mean, you know. yeah, a lot of plants are built on the ocean and uh, that seems to work. And it, Palo Verde gives me hope because they can run that pretty big. That's a pretty significantly big plant yep. in the middle of the desert and they're just using, you know, municipal wastewater. So yep. there are, I'm sure the engineers can figure it out if, if we're planning for it. Right. Right. And I mean, and the thing about nuclear is you, if you, if you went full bore nuclear, you wouldn't need a bunch of like small gas plants like you would gas plants you would you could just build a lot of large nuclear plants so they'd be less likely to reach water shortages but if you have these gas plants running they do require cooling so yeah yeah the thermal power and you know another engineering thing about uh solar pv is the hotter it gets the electrical output of solar panels goes down that's one other concern to to keep in mind when it comes to solar uh, solar panels, but you know, of course the bigger concern is the intermittency, and you have to fill in the gaps with fossil fuels in, in most cases. But uh, and yeah, and so there were some power outages, and luckily not as many as could have happened. But an example was Spokane, Washington. They have about two hundred twenty thousand people, and about nine thousand three hundred people lost power completely uh, and that's when temperatures reached 109 degrees also the highest temperature ever recorded there wow the high heat and high demand for power caused transformers to heat up creating a danger of explosions and problems were detected at uh, several substation transformers so basically kind of blew out some of the grid over there wow that that's definitely a concern because if those components uh will be vulnerable to the heat like this, then, you know, even if we have the generation, 
capacity and the ability to dispatch it, uh, our, our transmission infrastructure would also need to be able to weather this type of heat. So, yeah, um, yeah the, the climate issue is here now and it's scary. And we need some heavy hitter. Well, we know what that is. That's nuclear yeah. to really decarbonize the system we've got. And I'm starting, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to really get tired of the new, you know, goalpost moving arguments against nuclear. I, I still encounter people who will, uh, you know, share anti-nuclear content and, and make, you know, s some of the more recent anti-nuclear arguments that have been more popular is, is the economic, like they say, oh, it's just not economical, you know, as, and they say, you know, look at this uh, LCOE, look at the levelized cost of electricity, the solar and wind are cheaper, let's do that instead. And so they don't understand that there is this need to achieve deep decarbonization with our strategies. And if you read whether it's you know Lazard or whether it's the DOE um, or you know Department of Energy, any honest assessment of the levelized cost of electricity is going to be providing a statement on why it's problematic to compare dispatchable energy sources like nuclear with non-dispatchable energy sources like solar and wind. And this is the first issue I bring up with uh, people you know relying on LCOE as the anchor of their argument. They even say, like, you, you can't do that because this uh, LCOE is for investors who are looking to invest in, uh, you know, energy generating assets or if they're looking to understand what the costs are, where it's a, a single business entity. It's not a grand scheme because if, if solar and wind cannot scale to deep decarbonization, which they can't, then they're not a solution. Therefore, it doesn't matter how cheap they are. It's right. not going to work. Nuclear can scale to deep decarbonization. It's dispatchable. We can run it 24-7 if we wanted to. Um, and, you know, that's just the first problem with using LCOE. The second problem is a lot of these reports, they'll say, oh, we're, you know, going to assume it's a 40-year life, lifetime for nuclear. Um, or they start, like, th th there's so many variables and so many things you can input into the LCOE model that, that don't actually play out in the real world. And a nuclear plant can last a lot longer than 40 years. Um, but they only want to count, you know, the the huge capital expenditure up front um, is only going to pay itself off over the 40 years. That's how they build these models, where in reality, you know, okay, sure, you're paying off the interest and, and that gets paid off. But it's still a cash cow after that, like you're still, <laughs> it's still operational after that. So all the electricity you're generating after that 40 year mark is still going to be like good to go. Um, and, uh, doesn't have the CapEx costs tacked onto it under the LCOE model. Yeah. yeah the, the way I look at it, LCOE is like, sure. A solar panel farm can produce X amount of energy over its lifetime, but it doesn't, and it could do it technically. If you just look at total energy it produced versus how much the panels cost, you could say, oh, that's pretty cheap. But if you produce the energy when you don't need it or too much when you, you know, don't have the demand for it, it's intrinsically useless. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, what's the value you're getting out of it? And there's also like, I've read some of these reports where they are using some very favorable assumptions that are not realistic whatsoever. I remember reading one where they assumed the capacity factor for solar was going to be something like 33%, which I'm not aware of any solar installation that, that can get that, uh, but 
you know, uh, unless they're doing some accounting tricks with the actual installed capacity being undercut and, you know, wh whatever that might be. But, you know, when people claim to be caring about the climate and we must do everything we can to stop the climate crisis, all of a sudden, you know, a few more dollars in the megawatt hour on the cost basis is like, you know, oh, we can't do that. You know, <laughs> that's uh, that that's sort of it's it's this like contradiction that is just so apparent, but uh, just they, they don't get it. It's like it's oh, we can't solve the climate crisis like that. Like that's it's like wind and solar. They're like, you know, we can we could use a like twenty cent a kilowatt hour subsidy, but if nuclear asks for two more cents, that, <laughs> that we're, we're subsidizing that something that can't be subsidized. So it's just such a double standard. And I, they always will bring up the cost of like the new plants that are built, but the, the new plants that are being built are almost anom anomalies in how expensive they are, like compared to reactors being built in other countries and past reactors built in the United States. So they they say, oh hey, look at Volgdal, look at you know Hinckley C, uh, and you know so something in, in in general economics is you have the first of a kind builds and then you have the nth of a kind. So it's like the first time you try some ridiculously uh, complex like high like high impact projects uh, with all new parts, you know, everybody's on the job or, or building this thing for the first time, you're going to be making a lot of mistakes. You're going to be doing things inefficiently. You're going to be, you know, at the same time, hopefully learning like how to do things better. And, you know, oh, like all the technical mistakes or all the things that need to be corrected along the way, uh, all those get sorted out and added into the, you know, build guide for the next one going up. And so we see, you know, like, <laughs> we're, we're out of practice. And the reason why we're out of practice is because of the anti-nuclear sentiment to begin with. Yeah. And, you know, that, as, as far as feedback loops go, like how much, how much of the cost of current nuclear is a result of anti-nuclear sentiment? Um, we have leaders of anti-nuclear groups even saying, hey, uh, our strategy to kill nuclear power is just to keep the public afraid of it. And then we're going to use that to justify regulations that will be put onto it that will add costs to the industry and eventually it'll collapse under, under the high costs. Um, and we have, you know, the, one of the former presidents of the Sierra club was saying that. Um, and so there's their strategy out in the open. There's a reason nuclear is expensive. Uh, it's, you know, or at least more expensive than it needs to be for sure. Um, and you know, there's this other argument that's coming up now and I'm sure you've seen it, Phil, the, uh, oh, yeah. You know, oh well, we need to do something in the next twelve years, or we need to do something in the next eleven years. It takes fifteen to twenty years to build a nuclear plant. First of all, it doesn't take that long to build a nuclear power plant, and you people are just like, oh, it takes takes ten years to site the thing, or or or, or, or whatever. And I'm just like, you're just you're just letting the bureaucrats win. It. it and, you know, how long has the person who's making that argument been opposed to nuclear power? Um, and, you know, how long have we been subsidizing solar and winds? You know, and what, what, what has that done? Uh, so I like to bring up the graph where it shows, you know, France invested in nuclear in the 70s. 
what did what happened with those carbon emissions and then germany started investing even more money into solar and winds and what happened with those emissions <laughs> like it's a pretty stark difference um and you know if we were building nuclear at the rate we were going in the 70s at least in the u.s uh or like france was going in the 70s and 80s and sweden was going in the 80s you know, there was one study that came out that actually said, hey, we could probably get the entire global grid off of fossil fuels for the most part in 25 years or so, um, just scaling out the, those build rates. Um, you just do nothing, do nothing but build nuclear on time and on budget. Just just keep cranking them out, you know, at the added generation per year per capita um, that we have already achieved in in yep. uh, national build-out strategy, like the Mesmer um, uh, the Mesmer project in France, where it's just you know just hey uh, figure out a good design for nuclear power plant and build a lot of them and you know build them in parallel. That's another thing. Um, so you know they, they want to pretend that solar and wind can solve climate change and get rid of fossil fuels in ten years, but I you know that we haven't even seen that on the grid level um, and on the actual build out rates for uh, asset to asset grid to grid nuclear is always on top. And if you do have to build them out and it can finally get them done and it takes a long time, you got to replace them again in like 30 or 40 years uh, because, because your, your, your panels and your turbines wear out. That's being favorable 40 years. <laughs> but um <laughs> I mean, like some there's there's some studies coming out saying like, hey, uh, a lot of these wind turbines, they're failing after 16 years um, and, and especially building stuff on the ocean, like salt water is no joke for uh, big assets with um, moving parts. Yeah, it's just another example of, uh, again, moving the goalpost. If it's not if it's not Fukushima or Chernobyl, if it's not waste, now it's economics and now it's. Uh, we don't have enough time. And like you, you're the reason why we're in this point now where we have to go even faster. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I sometimes feel like it's kind of like a victim ab abuser dynamic where it's like, hmm. you know, they're blaming us for something that they caused, you know? Yeah. So. That's a pretty, pretty accurate depiction. And I'd like to, you know, I, I, when, when somebody brings that argument up, I like to say, well, do you support the closing of current nuclear plants? Because that's what all these green groups are doing, or like, I should say greenie groups, but they're, they're championing the closure of nuclear power plants. Okay, so you're opposed to a nuclear power plant that's continued running, uh, that's already built, like, you don't have to wait the 20 years, it's still running right now. Um, and it's, that's that's when you start, you know, they, they come up with another excuse of why they oppose nuclear and they're okay with it sh getting shut down. Um, it's... Uh, well, well, and I get annoyed when they're just like, well, I'm not anti-nuclear, but I'm doing that. I'm just like, no, dude, you're finding problems with it. You know, we should be trying to solve the problems that make it a little bit hard to do. And if, if, if these anti-nuclear types actually looked into the problems that they raise, that they claim to be really concerned about, uh, you know, which I looked into these problems, and you find that actually engineers have figured out solutions to, you know, if you want to define them as problems, well, there's been some amazing technological advances that has happened in the last few decades. And, you know, there's some good news on the horizon. Well, we've been talking about a lot of problems in this uh, this this episode, but I think a lot of what we said needed to be, you know, kind of 
laid out because of the rash of closures we are going to see if action isn't taken and how that's just insane during a climate crisis. But there is uh, some next generation stuff that's coming down the line, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, uh, Bill Gates is uh, Terra Power. Uh, they won a contract from the uh, U.S. Department of Energy for $80 million in initial funding to demonstrate their natrium power plants. It's a sodium-cooled. Natrium is the Latin, I believe, uh, word for sodium. So that's why it's Na on the periodic table. Interesting. And so they're uh, going to uh, build a like a pilot plant in Wyoming. The idea was to uh, basically build it at the site of a retiring coal plant. So that's a little bit of a poetic site to do it, you know, replacing one of the filthiest sources of power with potentially the cleanest. And, and they've selected Wyoming to do this. And, you know, the govern, governor cons- confirmed this on, the, on June 2nd. So that's exciting. That is uh, good. This project features a 345 megawatt sodium-cooled fast reactor. Uh, and it has a uh, molten salt storage compo- uh, component to it. Um, so you can basically have uh, heat on reserve, if I'm not mistaken, to yeah. to supplement other sources of power, like you know variable wind and solar, and so it can it can go up to 500 megawatts if you want it to uh, for peak demand. Uh, and the, again, they always when you do new projects, you tend to always over deliver on how much it would cost, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If they could, if it's successful and they could build lots of them, they would estimate maybe one of these plants could cost about cost about one billion each, which would be infinitely better than some of the new plants we're building right now. So, be a, yeah, capex of like uh, you know around three billion per gigawatt. That's those are the, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That that would be great if they could achieve that. And I, and I love this project because not only is you know you, as you mentioned, it's like. You know, poetic justice for a retiring coal plant to become a nuclear plant. It's also smart on the business and technical side because you have generation assets there that, you know, there's steam turbines, there's uh, infrastructure that exists that uh, from the coal plant that was using a heat source, you know, and was a coal furnace. And James Hansen and, and many other researchers have said, you know, one of the fastest ways that we could transition from fossil fuels off of fossil fuels would be to just go into the fossil fuel plants and set up a program where you basically swap out the heat source, whether it's a coal furnace um, or, you know, it's be a few more, uh, a few more steps with a, a gas turbine. But uh, you have the transmission infrastructure already going there. You have uh, certain parts of the plant that could be reused you have the offices there you have the infrastructure there you have everybody who have has their jobs there and their lives in that town and you can keep it as a power plant you just you know swap out the heat source because the cycle (laughs) the cycle's the same um no matter what the heat source is it's just a it's just a thermal steam plant you know yeah and so uh if if this can be pulled off if this can be demonstrated uh the fact that it's a fast reactor is also exciting because uh that means it's a lot more efficient at using uranium. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it burns up all your uh, transuranics. So, 
Yeah, I, I guess if, if that's right, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not the biggest reactor nerd, but <laughs> um, I mean, usually it'll it'll it, it definitely higher on the fuel efficiency for sure. And uh, the other thing is this this molten salt heat storage. Um, not only is that going to be good for you know keeping up with the chaotic load generation patterns of of renewables that are going to be on the grid, but in grids that don't have any intermittent renewables, just load following in general. Um, right. It's just uh, like one thing the renewable renewables crowd really does not like to hear, but it's the technical truth. Uh, storage pairs better with nuclear. Yep. Um, with solar and winds, like you can go t- two, three weeks with the combined solar and wind of a pretty built-out grid being, you know, an averaging under ten percent capacity factor, uh, and you know your batteries are going to be out over those two weeks. With nuclear, you're charging that thing up every night. So, <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and if you can have a magic electricity machine that has no emissions and can load follow, I think in Correct me if I'm wrong. I think we're we're done. We we figured out how to do electricity without carbon emissions. It's not it's not a puzzle anymore, right? Yeah. And hey, if if we can build one of them, and you know, three three forty five megawatts, like that's sort of between the like giant capex like Vogel size reactor, uh, and you know, bigger than the like pull it in on truck reactors. Although I don't know if they're designing these to be pulled in on a truck, but um, the fact that it's smaller means that, you know, will likely take less time to build up. And if we could just get a process going where if the, the folks at Terra Power can really engineer the process of building these things and, and get that more efficiently and get those costs down, we just, you know, you slapping these things out, building these out and, and, and hopefully, that that does become this uh you know the vanguard the um leader of the actual decarbonization movement on the energy sector yeah and and i'm just happy we're getting a reactor in my neck of the country uh colorado is just south of wyoming as everyone knows uh the other square state and so (laughs) maybe i'll be able to go and visit them once they start building or something but i really want to try to find someone at Terra Power to come on the podcast. That'd be really, really cool, I think. Yeah, that would, that would definitely make for a great episode. I'd love to learn more about that technology and, and the business and how things are moving along. Well, we have been talking for a long time, so we don't want to keep any listeners uh, getting bored of this. So uh, I guess we'll we'll kind of leave it there. Do you have any final words colby well uh yeah i think these are there are big things happening this year in the nuclear uh, energy sector we're seeing the consequences of closing down plants we're seeing the need for keeping the plants open and we're seeing some new hope <laughs> we have terrapower natrium reactors going up uh in wyoming hopefully and local support there so um yeah overall i think it's a worthwhile talk and i think it's uh we we covered a lot of things that were happening this year yep. and stop shutting down perfectly good nuclear power plants during a climate crisis okay folks let's just stop that <laughs> so. i think our audience is in well agreement with that <laughs> all right well thank you for tuning in we covered a lot And our apologies for going so long on time with this one. 
Our hope is that we are getting the point out as clear as possible to many listeners. It is an absolute travesty to erase huge amounts of emission-free electricity from nuclear energy during a climate crisis. We have to get the carbon emissions problem under control, and the top priority of anyone concerned about global warming is to raise their voices in support of preserving our current nuclear fleet. These wonderful energy-producing machines are an indispensable asset and the biggest emission-preventing energy technology we have. Either we listen to science or we don't when it comes to solving this problem. The big question is, what do we do about nuclear power plant closures? One big thing is to contact your local U.S. House representative or your state senators to have a voice for nuclear in Washington. If you live in a state with nuclear power assets that are in danger of closing, contact your representatives in your state house. Go to public utility commission meetings. Meet with climate activist organizations and attend functions and rallies. Tell your family and friends in person and online. If nothing else, we can peacefully and legally protest in the public square and outside the grounds of nuclear plants. We need to be vocal and sound the alarm because not enough people are aware of the threat nuclear closures pose to the environment. Science and reason are on our side. Not doing anything we can to limit greenhouse gas emissions is wrong. Not giving people affordable energy abundance is wrong. Allowing companies to pollute the commons with impunity is wrong. We are choosing to stand up for what is right, even if it is unpopular. Climate change is probably the biggest issue facing our civilization and puts in jeopardy all the progress society has made in human flourishing. We have so much at stake and we must act. Saving nuclear power is critical to a livable future. Thank you so much for listening to this episode called Shutting Down Our Future. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words, again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Edited and produced by Jonna Adams.